trying to sort of like recognize the times I need to give myself a break. I think that's like the biggest issue for me is like, I sort of feel like I want to do all the things all the time. And I think there's like sort of moments in which particularly in the pandemic, we had to be like, you know what, I can't do that. And I think that, you know, saying no to stuff is a form of self-care. That's what I'm telling myself. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm excited to sit down with Emily Oster, PhD and professor of economics at Brown University. My mother-in-law just sent me an article that claims kids getting a sugar high is all a myth. What? My mind is blown. Last week, Huddy had two pieces of cake for my birthday, and he ran around the house like a wild man and didn't fall asleep until 10 p.m. So my immediate reaction was, I have to send this to Emily Oster. Was it true? What was the data? Ever since I was pregnant, I've turned to Emily's books for her data-driven answers to hundreds of questions. Everything from can I drink coffee while pregnant to is baby led weaning safe and how worried should I be about ticks this summer? Unlike most parenting experts, she doesn't tell you what you should do. She summarizes all of the data in plain English and empowers you to decide what's best for you and your family. As an economist and professor, Emily Oster is accustomed to using data to inform the decisions that she made in her own life. When Emily got pregnant with her daughter, Penelope, she was shocked by the lack of data provided by doctors to back up the common rules of pregnancy. Emily started to analyze the data behind many common pregnancy rules and wrote a book, Expecting Better, to improve decision-making for pregnant women. As her kids have grown up, her research has continued through two subsequent books, Crib Sheet, focusing on birth to preschool, and Family Firm, which comes out today, focusing on the early school years. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm super excited to be here. I am delighted to talk to you, and there is so much that I have to ask you that I could learn from you that you could share with our listeners. I wanted to start, though, with a little bit of a rewind. Where were you in your career when you had your two children? So the answer is a little different for the two kids. Um, so when I had, so I'm, I'm, my main job is being a professor. Um, and so when I had my daughter, I was, um, a junior faculty member. So I did not have tenure. I worked at, uh, the Chicago at the business school at the university of Chicago. Um, and, so that I was kind of, I, I don't know what you'd say, sort of not exactly, wasn't exactly the beginning, but it was sort of mm. like kind of early mid career timing. And then um, my second, I had, after I had tenure uh, at, at Brown at a different university, when I had already written one book and was sort of doing a little bit more stuff in, in that space, but kind of at a more stable point in my career, I would say. What was the difference between being a not tenured professor and being tenured? Did that have an impact on your leave or how you thought about having a child? Yeah. I mean, I think that it, um, I think that it didn't sort of practically matter almost not at all. Um, And so, you know, in the sense that like the way that my job works, I, I sort of teach actually, if anything, 
I was teaching when I had my second. So when I had my first, I had like four or five months between sort of birth and then teaching. Mm. I actually had my second in the middle of the semester and I was teaching. So I had like, you know, I actually didn't really have much leave. Now I don't, it's not like I teach, don't, you shouldn't like have in your mind that I teach every day. I don't teach every day. And so it's, it's a sort of not quite as bad as that, as that sounds. Um, But in terms of, you know, those kind of responsibilities, it really wasn't very different. I think the biggest difference was just, you know, how it felt Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, when in the sort of pre-tenure period, there's kind of a lot of anxiety around getting, getting tenure and kind of getting promoted and and so on. And that's sort of dialed, that was obviously way dialed back with the second kid. So I think even though it felt busier, it didn't have the same kind of like the pressure was a little bit alleviated. I got it. Uh, So I am a big fan. I've loved your books. I actually was telling my husband last night that I was going to be interviewing you this morning. And he said, oh, wow, you're a hero, which was really (laughs) sweet that he knows how much um, I adore your books. How did you start writing about parenting? So, you know, it really is, I mean, I sort of say this a lot, but it really is that I got pregnant. Um, that's kind of the whole, that's kind of the whole thing. Um, so I got pregnant with, with Penelope, um, and I was doing a lot of, uh, of kind of research in the service of that experience. Um, and I have always really liked to write, mm-hmm. um, to sort of write for a popular audience, kind of inspired by my, um, by the stuff that I'm doing at work and sort of putting, putting those pieces together. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't like a huge stretch to start doing that, but I, I remember just sort of at some point just starting, just like starting to write. Um, and, you know, then kind of finding that I, I liked it a lot and then ultimately, you know, writing enough that I could share it with, with an agent. And then it sort of went, went from there, but it really sort of came from this kind of like, I'm having this experience. I'm not having the, I'm frustrated with it in some ways. And I, I would kind of like, this is like a way that I can express and understand that frustration externally. Did you, so did you start writing? So this was when you were writing, expecting better. Yeah. Did you start writing it while you were pregnant and going yeah. through that whole journey? Yeah, I was, um, I sold the book when I was 35 weeks pregnant. So like, I mean, it wasn't done just to be clear, you don't sell the book based on a finished book. Um, but I, yeah, I wrote the sort of like some of the first, I basically did most of the research and then some of this initial writing sort of before I had Penelope and then I, and then I sold it. And then of course I had to write the rest of it and then I had this baby. So, um, that was the thing. <laughs> I'm not sure I would like recommend, I'm not sure that timing is like exactly what I'd recommend, but you know, worked out okay. <laughs> You just like make it sound so simple. I'm sure it was right. It's just simple. you know, you just do it. You just write it. No. <laughs> how were your own pregnancies, and how was that experience of doing all of this research while you were pregnant and writing to empower so many women? So I I was basically very lucky. Um, you know, both of my pregnancies were pretty smooth. Um, you know, I had like the regular kinds of things that people had. I was kind of nauseous. I was like, I got, but like to give you a context, the worst thing that happened is that at the end of the second pregnancy, I, I 
I had been running a lot. Um, I like, you know, until like 37 weeks and then I got like a pretty bad hamstring injury mm. um, because you shouldn't necessarily do that. And then I was like having a lot of trouble walking <laughs> like for the last like three weeks, two weeks maybe because he came at 39 weeks. But that's kind of like, that's kind of like a low, the gives you a sense like it was fine. Um, I was very, very lucky. Um, and, you know, it was, um, it was interesting to, it was interesting to do the research for the books, like while, particularly with Penelope while I was pregnant, because I think for me, it, it was like a huge piece of sort of how I process, um, how I process information is to write about it. And so, you know, there was sort of like, I'm thinking about this question, but in order to actually kind of collate this and make a decision, particularly because I was sort of like jointly deciding some, at least some of the time with, with my spouse, the kind of experience of sort of putting it all together and writing, that is how I was able, that is how I was processing it. So I think that sort of comes in, comes out through the books is like, this is, this is not just like, I made a decision and let me explain to you, like what I was, you know, what I think was going on in my head. It's like literally writing this down was part of, is part of the decision-making for me. And I think that that um, it's part of how I process some of, you know, the sort of natural anxieties associated with all these decisions and all the things that happen when you're pregnant. And what was the reaction to the book when it came out? I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, sort of interesting to, to reflect on. So I got a lot of, you know, one of the things I say in the first book is I, I talk a lot about these evidence and alcohol. It's actually not a huge like physical part of, of the book, but it ended up being the thing that I, I, I wrote about in the sort of initial excerpt or one of the things I wrote about in the initial excerpt. So it got like a fair amount of attention. And I think that I, you know, somewhat naively had not sort of exactly put together how much some people were going to push back on that or exactly what the pushback would look like. Um, I think if I had to do it again, I would not have, I mean, I think the conclusions are what they are. I stand by them. The data is right. I might have talked about it a little differently, um, but, you know, because of various factors that ended up being something where it was like a lot of, um, there was like a lot of pushback, um, and a lot of, you know, kind of anger that I wasn't expecting. Um, so I think that was, I, that was harder. That was, that colored some of that experience. And the other thing is that, you know, writing a book like this is a pretty unusual thing to do as an untenured economist, as you might imagine. And so some of the people that I work with thought were, were like not super happy that I had, that I had done this. So, you know, the, the kind of release of the book was a little bit, um, I have more complicated feelings about than I did about say the release of Gripshi later or kind of later experiences with expecting better. Well, it's so, there's so much like in our society about drinking and pregnancy and that's so deeply ingrained, um, and so I can imagine the the backlash that you received, um, which is so unfortunate uh, that that's how people reacted, especially when. So all of your work is about data. It's not like your personal opinion of you know without any facts. Like it's not. It, it's yeah, yeah. No, I think it was you know, I, you know, the U S has a very odd relationship with like a, a different, a different relationship with alcohol, let's say, than, than some places in Europe. And I think that sort of came out for me some in these, in these interactions that it's sort of, uh, it just, it's a, it's a really triggering issue for a lot of people. And then fast forward, did the same 
you know, you had very strong reactions to your opinions about reopening schools during COVID. Was that a little bit like, oh my goodness, here we go again. There are all these strong emotions and opinions about something that I wrote. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I mean, has some of those features. The thing is like now I'm old. (laughs) So it's like, it's, you know, and I think I also, um, I'm old and a little bit less, like a little bit more jaded. So I think I was like, I was expecting that mm. more. And so it's, it's sort of still bother, like still bothers me. Right. It's still, still, you know, when people tell you, like people yell at you or send you mean stuff, like it still makes me feel upset. Mm-hmm. Um, but not to the same, like not to the same extent. Um, and I am not as surprised. I think part of it was with expecting better. I just didn't expect it. Um, which was of course, like when I reflect on it now, I can't even believe that that's like, I can't even believe I didn't expect it. Um, but you know, here it was a little, you know, always, it's easier to like steal yourself if you know, people are going to yell. Can you talk a little bit more about how your research has shifted during COVID? Yeah, sure. So, so I think, you know, basically what happened is, is, you know, I'd written expecting better than I wrote crib sheet. I have another book coming out in August. Um, it's now coming out in August called The Family Firm. And so in sort of service of that and kind of the general you know, platform, whatever it is that we're having here, um, my publisher at some point had said, you know, hey, why don't you have like a newsletter? Like newsletters are the new thing. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, okay, you know, fine. Like I'll do this, you know, if it's really important to you. It's like when they tell me to be on Facebook, like, all right, yeah. It's like, I'm, t- I'm waiting for them to tell me I should be on TikTok, like, <laughs> there's a line there's a line people um so i so i got this newsletter on substack and which i started writing in like february basically early february of, of 2020 with the intention that it would be you know more of sort of like digesting stuff that people who um who read my books care about and and so on and then it you know rapidly transitioned into really just being about covid and mm. you know trying to help families kind of navigate um, the decisions that they were making in COVID. And so in the, you know, in the end, it sort of had like sort of two strands of this, which kind of have, have sort of separated a lot. One is I'm, st- you know, just writing a lot around decision-making and, you know, we're facing a lot of choices we didn't expect to face. They're really fraught. You know, we have the, and particularly for people in our kind of generational space where there's the kids and the, and the grandparents, there's a lot of pieces of that that we just like, didn't think we were going to need to think about in quite, in quite this way. Um, and so a lot of what I've been writing is, you know, how can you frame these decisions in a way that, that like helps you make them correctly, or at least like whether it's the right decision or not mm-hmm. is something you'll never know. Um, but, you know, at least have a good sort of a good decision process. So that's kind of a big piece of what I've been, um, what I've been doing in there simultaneously trying to give people the data that they need to make those, to make those choices. And then I sort of, transitioned, I, I added at some point this sort of piece of this where I was actually collecting some data initially on childcare centers um, and then later on schools, partly just because there's like a, it was just like a dearth of, of data collection efforts. You know, the previous federal administration maybe wasn't great at some different things um, of which this piece of data collection was, was one of them. And so I ended up um, you know, sort of standing up initially like some, a little bit of data collection around childcare centers and, and camps. And then ultimately a much bigger, uh, much bigger effort around, around schools. So I've, I've been doing a lot of that and really just, you know, collecting, collating, aggregating data about, 
about schools and now doing some research on that. So it's been a sort of evolving, evolving set of items. Yes. And then what was the reaction to your gathering that data, especially around schools and your assessment of the situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I was among the early people to say, you know, schools should be open more. Um, I mean, I, I think in, in a certain ways I've been saying that since like the summer. Um, and I said it, you know, pretty publicly when we came out with our initial um, initial data in, in October, I wrote something in the Atlantic called like schools aren't super spreaders, um, which, you know, I think was, I mean, of course, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, the first person to say that schools should open, but I think that was a, that was something some people picked up on early on as like, okay, this is, you know, this should influence our push to our push to, to reopen, you know, and I think that anytime you make a statement like that, you're going to get, you know, people, people pushing back and people pointing out, you know, the data you have isn't perfect. True. Um, you know, there are like other things we might worry about also, also true. So, you know, it's been a little bit of a, of a, of a push pull there, but I think honestly, at this point, like, I think the scientific consensus has moved to, to the kind of schools are, are low, low risk at this point. So you were just talking about how a lot of your work is also just centered around decision-making and how to go about making a decision. Um, What's been one of the toughest decisions that you've had to make as a parent? Um, so, so I, I think, so last year, um, we made a decision that we, we couldn't follow through on, um, because of COVID, but, um, but my daughter asked to go to, to sleepaway camp. Um, and this was like after she was in, in the third grade. Um, and I, uh, I had a lot of like, you know, that was a place where like my initial instinct was like no effing way like, forget it. You're never leaving my house. Um, and then I, I sort of like had to do, do this thing. You know, I think sometimes what's hard about decisions is when your initial instinct is, is sort of like so much, and then you have to like step yourself back and be like, okay, actually this, this isn't a crazy question. Like, you know, can I get a tiger? Right. It's not like it's, it's something where actually like it, even though your instinct sort of pushes in one direction, sometimes you have to rein it, to rein it in. I think, I think those for me are the hardest things in, in parenting when I have a really strong instinct in kind of one direction and I need to think about, well, you know, maybe that instinct isn't right, or maybe there's something different about the way my kid is processing this or, um, or, you know, something else, some, some other things I need to take into account. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, for me personally, I feel like, I mean, I'm still shocked at how many decisions as a parent you have to make every day. Like there's some super tiny, some bigger, right? Uh, this morning, even my my son was going downstairs to see his grandmother and he wanted to bring this like a treat down to her and it was in this little glass jar with a top. And so I said, okay, I'm going to carry it down because we live on the top floor. So it's like two flights of stairs. So I said, I'll carry it down and bring it to you. And he said, I really want to do it. He's three and a half. I really want to do it. I'll be really careful. I'll carry it with two hands. And you're faced in this moment of like, what is the actual risk that he's going to drop it or it's going to, he's going to fall because he's carrying this egg and your mind is just racing a million miles an hour. And then ultimately I let him carry it because I felt like 
the sense of empowerment for him and feeling like I got to do this thing. And this is something he was so important to him to be able to do it Mm -hmm. probably outweighed the small risk. He goes down those flights of stairs constantly. Did he drop it? No, he didn't. He went, I mean, it must've taken him (laughs) seven minutes to get down the stairs. And he said, can you watch me go? And I said, okay. (laughs) And I'm standing there holding the baby and we're just watching him. And he's literally moving, you know, one step every five seconds and so carefully carrying it. It was really, really funny. No, it is. I mean, it is the sort of hallmark of parenting is, is in some of these places is like the number of, of kind of things that you just didn't think about that then you need to make a decision about, right. Uh, you know, right away. Um, that's, I, that part is hard. And when you think about some of the big decisions, like when to even have kids, is that something you spent a lot of time using your, your method to, to figure out? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, um, both times actually. So, you know, we, I think we sort of had a a particular, you know, we always knew we wanted to have kids and then, you know, there were a lot of decisions about exactly what was the right timing around our, around our jobs. Um, you know, there's one sort of school of thought in academia that like, you know, we should wait till you have tenure to have a kid, but it seemed like then we were going to kind of run out of time. Um, and so we didn't, you know, we didn't do that, but, you know, that was a sort of, there were a series of kind of decisions around that. And then there were a series of decisions around the second kid having to do with, you know, how much time do we want between, you know, how much time do we want between kids? So I think we, we had initially sort of thought like, I know we had some idea that like they should be three years apart. I don't know. I didn't really know where we came up with that, but that, anyway, that was our thing. Um, and then, you know, we had this sort of really complicated professional, like year of sort of really complicated professional stuff, um, and basically just decided like, we need to, you know, we, we sort of can't do this this year. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, that we've kind of got to, got to reconfigure. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of moving pieces there, but it's not an easy decision. And, you know, I think for many people, even the decision about whether to have another one or how many to have, you know, is again, sort of like all there's just a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts there. Yeah. I think initially I also thought that when you're thinking about having a second, like you'd know more and you'd feel like a little more confident in that decision because you've made the decision once and, and you right. learned from it. And that just wasn't really the case. Yeah. I mean, I, f- I don't know how you feel, but I think for me, like in some ways having the second was much easier. And in some ways it was, it was sort of much harder. Like, I think the, the sort of, I kind of knew what to expect and also our lives at that point were already organized around like having a small person. So we already, you know, relative to the kind of like my time is my own, I'm enjoying going to brunch, you know, whatever, like there's sort of the shock there was, was much smaller. I think the thing I hadn't anticipated as much is, you know, I had spent, my daughter was four and, you know, like I, like I was used to spending a tremendous amount of time with her. And then when you have a second one, you know, that time was like, was sort of like really curtailed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was the piece I felt the sort of most like the angsty about when the second kid arrived. 
Yeah. I think for us, even just in terms of we had, we had gone through this whole plan of, we wanted around two and a half to three years difference. I don't know why. It's like, that's the same thing. Sounds good. Sounds like, sure. They'll be old enough, but not too old that they'll hopefully still be friends. Maybe. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I think we had the same kind of, so we had this whole plan and then we had done fertility for our first. And so we just thought, okay, we'll go back to see our doctor. Like we had the whole plan for how we were going to go back to our fertility doctor. And then we surprise got pregnant and it was to- So it totally shocked us and caught us off guard. Like I had no idea that I was even pregnant for, you know, the first few weeks. Whereas with the first, when you're doing, you like, you like, no, and instantly you're tracking so closely. So that in and of itself was such a reminder of, yeah, you can plan and have all right. of your decisions made and this person's going to come and interrupt them and, and throw them all out the window. Throw them off. Yeah. No, it's totally right. So how I, you've also written about how you are so focused on empowering other women and giving them the information and the data to help them make decisions and to also relax, but how you are not the most relaxed person. How have you been able to find moments of relaxation or self-care? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, You know, I, I run a lot. I guess is for me, like a, something that I do that is like, that's sort of for, that's for, for me. Um, and I protect a little bit, but this is not something I'm very good at. It's something you're still working on. It's yes. Let's put it that way. It's something I'm still, <laughs> it's something I'm still working on. I mean, I'm trying to sort of like recognize the times I need to give myself a break. I think that's like the biggest issue for me is like, I sort of feel like I want to do all the things all the time. And I think there's like sort of moments in which particularly in the pandemic, we got to be like, you know what, I can't do that. And I think that, you know, saying no to stuff is a form of self-care. That's mm. what I'm telling myself. Oh, I like that. I'm going to lock that line away. Saying no to stuff is a form of self-care. That's a great, that's a great one. You also wrote, I loved in one of your recent newsletters, you were talking about how, you know, the fact that there's so little we can control in our lives right now is creating um, some more anxiety and just making us not feel great. And how for you, you've brought back some of that control. I love the the ice rink, ice in, rink. <laughs> in the backyard. And I can just picture you out there hosing Spray. it down. Um, so cool. Looking back on the last year, what are some of your reflections from living through the pandemic? Particularly my daughter is now almost 10. Um, so actually getting, we've spent a lot more time together this year than we mm. would past, even though she's been in school, just because you know, they're out of school some and like, whatever it's COVID. Um, and, uh, and that's been, um, that's been really nice to sort of like get to know her a little bit more. And I'm trying to like, hold on a little bit to the idea that, okay, you know, this, I suspect this is a time. I hope this is a time we look back on and think like that was a really good moment in our relationship in sort of shifting, shifting a little bit into having a slightly more like grown up kind of mother daughter relationship, um, and sort of finding, finding those, finding those little moments of, okay, this is like a nice thing. Um, I think the other thing that I, and I've been telling my students this a lot too, is, you know, there are a lot of little losses, like it's easy, you know, there's so much of a pressure, which I think is reasonable to say, look, many of us, like I'm so lucky, 
you know, I'm lucky that my kids are in school. I'm lucky that I have resources. I'm lucky that, you know, nobody got sick. Like we're, you know, we're so lucky. Um, but it's okay to, to also grieve the losses that are small and to say, you know, boy, I really, like, I really wish that I could have gone on vacation last summer. I really wish that I could have gone to my prom or, you know, I really wish that I had had this, even if those things seem like, okay, well, sure. But a lot of people are much worse off. Yes. But like, this is a loss, you know, this is a loss for you. And just recognizing that, you know, those are, those are kind of valid, valid feelings, um, I think is, is important. You can be grateful and also feel sad at the same time. Those can live together. Exactly. One of my dear friends, she's um, said for for years, but it feels so, you know, in, uh, relevant right now. Where she said, also, somebody else, just because somebody else's situation might be more challenging or difficult than yours, doesn't make your situation any easier for you personally. And that was such a an eye opener for me to think yeah. again. These things can live together. It's not. It's not either or, and that somehow you're a bad person if you're not recognizing the things that, or you're having trouble with your own individual losses, whatever they might be. Yeah, exactly. So you have so much going on all the time. You have teaching, research, writing, your newsletter, your Instagram presence, you have two kids, you have so many balls in the air. How do you make that juggle work? You know, I, I will, I will say that I have a really good partner um, and my kids go to school. So like in terms of time, uh, those are like, those have been really important um, in sort of making time. And I, you know, particularly my, I've been doing a lot more different random stuff um, in the mm-hmm. pandemic than I was doing before. And, and, you know, my husband's been really supportive about kind of picking up the slack where I, you know, when I have to I don't know, be on Instagram live at night or whatever, whatever, like weird stuff I end up doing. Um, I think the other thing is I write really quickly. Um, and so that has, that has made some of all this, this writing possible, I guess, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't sleep sleep that much. Um, and, and I think it's just, you know, for me, this, this time has felt, um, like there are important things I need to do. Um, and you know, that there are, it, it feels like at least some of the time I'm helping people. And that is for me, like super motivating. And it makes me want to, you know, keep writing and keep thinking about these questions, even when I'm tired. So I'm sure you constantly hear from fans and moms who like me are really grateful for all of your research and work, but something tells me not everyone is a fan. How do you handle those moments when you get challenging feedback? I mean, sometimes, you know, people, so people, of course, some people send me like, I, you know, you're the worst, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I just delete. I once talked to my, my daughter has like a very good, uh, much better sort of like EQ than I do. Like she's just much better with people. And so one time I was explaining to her, like sometimes I feel bad when people say mean things. And she was like, do you have to read those? (laughs) It's like, no. Um, And so sometimes I just try to, ignore those, um, ignore those things. But I do, you know, I, I, I read a lot of the critical emails people send me in part because actually the people who, who write to me, um, often send very thoughtful things, which are not like you're the worst, but you know, what about this? And some of them are sort of coming from 
like I'm, but here is something that maybe you didn't think of, or, or here is a way that I'm worried about. And I actually use that a lot in sort of crafting, like, how am I going to write the next thing? Because part of what's been really great about the newsletter is it's not just like a one shot, you know, you write for like the New York times, like you've got one thing, they don't let you like write again three days later to like explain some things that you were, that you should have showed us that before. Um, but when you write a newsletter, you can do whatever you want because it's your newsletter. And so I get a chance sometimes to say like, Hey, you know, a lot of people like this, but some people raise this concern and let me, you know, let me clarify kind of what I think about that. Um, so I, you know, I try to use some of those sort of maybe slightly more critical feedback to, to you know, make things better. So this is probably going to be a hard question because it's going back a ways in time. What advice would you give to your pre-mom self? Oh boy. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that any, I think part of the issue is like the, the best advice would be like, you know, treat the first kid like the second kid. Like, you know, don't, like, don't worry about, like, I spent so much time in the first year, like obsessing about all kinds of tiny, tiny things. And, you know, and trying to like find patterns where, you know, I remember the, like, you know, these things where you're like, you're like, well, they nursed for 20 minutes on this side and 22 minutes on that side. So if we do that again, then they'll sleep. It's just like, that was like the one good sleep. So, you know, it's gotta be at least, it means like all this like crazy stuff you try to you know, you, you try to, I mean, my husband had a spreadsheet of like, it's just like, cause crazy, you know, crazy stuff. And I think I would want to tell, you know, like, don't bother with that. Cause of course, like most, like most people, the first year of my kid's life was really hard. And, and like, it was, you know, it had a lot of stresses that like ex post when I look back on them seem, seem crazy. Um, it seemed like we definitely didn't need to like be so, so worried about that. Um, but so I, I would be sort of tempted to give that advice except that I know that I wouldn't have listened and neither would anyone else because everyone always gives for like first time parents, but it's basically you're, you're so in it at that, at that point. And it's so new and, and, you know, it's so, it's so difficult to, to step back probably because you're tired for you for other reasons. I think that nobody would be willing to listen to that advice, including me. So, so that's the advice you may have given, but wouldn't have listened to yourself. Do you think there's any advice that you could have given yourself that you would have followed? Um, well, I'm very stubborn. I don't like to listen to other people's advice, including my own. Including your own. <laughs> including my own future. That's no. Um, you know, I, I think one piece, um, I had a really hard time at the beginning with, with breastfeeding. And I think some of that was, um, there were some very practical things I could have done differently um, that would have made that easier. Like, don't worry if other people see your boobs. That like, maybe I think that really would have helped me if I was just like, hey, you know what? If people see your boobs, it's cool. What else? They don't, they don't care. Um, and that would have saved me a lot of the most frustrating breastfeeding experiences, like trying to like nurse the baby in like a hot closet and other things where I was like, you know, under the blanket. And, you know, I think I could have just like let that go. Mm. Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like with my first, I would often ask other people and be like, oh, is it going to like bother you basically if I breastfeed here? And then now that I look back on it, I'm like, why the hell did I care? Why would you care? Even if they yeah. make them feel so uncomfortable, like they can leave. The baby is hungry and I'm going to feed them regardless. Yeah. I, I, I think the best, like my best sort of experience with this was we went when Penelope was 
like four months old, I would have advised myself not to do this um, actually. Um, but we went on a, on a trip to Spain with my family, huge mistake. Um, but anyway, uh, the, um, but I remember like, you know, we were going like out to breakfast or to a restaurant or something. And, uh, and I asked the person, like the place we were staying, I said, said, like, is it going to be okay to, to, you know, feed the baby at this, like, it was like, it was like a bar, a pub or something. Um, and she was just like, she basically, we, like, we couldn't, she couldn't understand the question. Like we asked the question in Spanish, we asked the question in, she was just like, basically just like, I don't understand what your question is. Like, is your question, will they have food for the baby? Like, no, it's a bar. Um, you know, (laughs) it's just like, but it was so, it was, it was, she just, it was like, ultimately I, she was just like, I don't understand why anyone would care. Like if your baby's hungry, I guess Mm -hmm. that you'll have to just nurse them in in the bar and it's totally fine. And I think this is another thing where the U S has a sort of slightly weird uh, puritanical approach to this stuff. Right. Like you should be covered up and yeah. Yeah. Although simultaneously, like breastfeeding is the most important thing you can possibly do. And if you don't do it, you're not a good parent, by the way, don't take your boobs out. Um, which feels like a bit of a, a weird double standard. Yeah, totally. But I feel like that's also so many things about being a woman, being yes. a mother that you could apply that same, I don't know, double standard to yeah. so many aspects of life. It's totally true. Uh, well, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning and for sharing your story and your words of wisdom. It's been wonderful chatting with you. No, this is great. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.